In this episode, we have the pleasure of hearing from Joshua Ryan Saha of the University of Edinburgh, and he will be discussing how you can use data, big or small, to grow your tourism business. This is a presentation you do not want to miss. Uh, yeah, so today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, data and tourism. Um, for some of you, this might be a little bit basic. For others, it might be quite insightful. Hopefully, it'll be useful for all of you. Um, my background, uh, I'll just sort of explain briefly before I get into the, the interesting stuff. The first one, which isn't on here, is I'm from Grimsby. And it's important because if you're from Grimsby, it's very likely you get into tourism because everywhere you visit afterwards is like a magical wonderland. <laughs> so, uh, so that's why I got into tourism. But, but it, it did come quite late on. My first job was uh, from, from going down to Grimsby was in the east end of London. And uh, believe it or not, I was a neighborhood crime reduction officer in Green Street. So I'm not in the film, but uh, uh, that was an interesting start to the world of work. Green Street, if you know it, is famous for football violence between West Ham and Millwall. So anyway, that's an interesting start. I then decided to move somewhere a little bit safer, which was uh, Bosnia. And uh, I worked with a NGO there called uh, Coalitia 143, uh, where we tried and horribly failed to change the Bosnian constitution, but that was an interesting experience. Um, I then moved to an organization called Nesta, where we did some work uh, with BBC. Um, and we tried to set a, a massive grand challenge uh, for what would be the biggest, um, the biggest technological development uh, incentivized by a 10 million pound grant. And it was all on sort of um, on BBC Horizon episode. We were trying to vote for what would be the most uh, uh, important challenge. It was infectious diseases, which is actually very prescient right now, especially for tourism. Uh, I got somehow missed out of this photo of David Attenborough. I don't know how, but I'm sure they regret it. And then uh, finally, I moved up to Edinburgh to be part of the Data Lab, which is the Innovation Center for Data in Scotland, um, where I was heading up the work to develop data science skills. I did a lot of work at the University of Glasgow, a lot of work with um, Strathclyde and GCU as well, um, all around trying to get more data scientists. But one of the things that I started to do was um, I guess being a tourist to Scotland, um, being a tourist to Edinburgh, and getting to travel all around it, understanding and thinking about technology, made me just more interested in tourism. And because I was working in data, I started to work with Scottish Enterprise, Scottish Government, and think about how data is applied to the tourism sector. And I was fortunate enough to be offered a position in the city region deal the University, um, the University of Edinburgh was part of, to look at how can we help grow the uh, technology work in the sector, uh, first of all in Edinburgh, but also in the surrounding region, and then hopefully also to Scotland. So what I'm going to talk to you today is a little bit about, if you're a small business or, or any type of business, where I would start thinking about how to use data. Um, and then the second part, really, is some of the stuff that we've started. Trigger warning is a lot of bit, it's quite a lot about Edinburgh, um, but I hope that's all right. Don't sort of kick me out. Nothing about Grimsby, so it's fine. Um, so I think the first myth around data and tourism, or data generally, that it's all about big data, AI, um, that is exceptionally important, and the opportunities there are massive. But actually, for a lot of any business, just using data is really, really valuable. Um, does anyone want to venture a description of data science, by the way? 
No, I'll give it a go. Um, so uh, the way I like to think about it, back to my time at the data lab, is data science is it's how you sort of extract knowledge using computational methods from big corpuses of data. And of course, uh, you know, I'm sure all of us use social media and watch YouTube and watch Netflix and all that stuff. It's just creating so much data all the time. So the, all this huge amount of data, um, all this really, really powerful computational processing power, bringing those two things together, you can make amazing predictions, insights, all this sort of stuff. Um, but starting off, I think, as a tourism business, it's about what's happening outside your front door or what's happening at your front door, be it digitally or in, in, uh, in the physical world. <laughs> um, so the first sort of thing I always think about uh, was when I had a conversation with a really good company based in Edinburgh, doing work in Glasgow, um, uh, Scott Beertours. And I was just chatting about, you know, where does data and tourism fit in? And she just talked about, um, Sarah, she just talked about how the, the work she'd put into developing her CRM made her understand when people were calling up her business. And she realized that they just weren't really open to calls during that time. So all this information would go into your CRS, CRM system, she analyzed it. Her front door was closed at the most important times. And she also could then track how people would call. And it's sort of basics. I'm sure many of you have got CRMs. But it was just really interesting to me because it also mapped on to the problem in tourism around things like productivity and actually the physical front door being closed. You know, whenever I chat to Visit Scotland, we always talk about how in some parts of the Highlands there will be many, many tourists and every business is closed because they just don't know who's outside. Which brings me on to a very weird example. This is a, the best picture of a butcher shop. By the way, you can't really find good butcher shop pictures, which aren't like disgusting. Anyway, um, now this is not, uh, it's not a big data example, but it's, I think, quite an interesting one, which is, I'm not even sure it's true. I'm going to go for it. But um, if you had a butcher shop, and then at the end of a road, a pub opens up, and uh, they realize that the footfall going outside the butcher shop is pretty high during the day. But after everyone's had a few drinks, walked by, the, the football's really high about, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, because all these revelers are going by. So what does a butcher shop do? Well, it could potentially cook its offcuts. I don't know the lingo. Grimm's was a fish place. And, um, uh, you know, and then serve them to hungry revelers. Uh, and then they quickly find that they're, you know, creating more money from this particular investment. Now, why is this relevant? I think it just shows that if you're using any type of data, you're understanding what's happening outside your front door, then you can innovate. You can start to develop new products, services. Um, you can uh, potentially make more money. And this is the reason I sort of talk about that particular example, which may be fictional, is that this is borne out in studies. So my time in Nesta, they were saying that if you're using any type of data, not just big data, just using data to make decisions, you're more productive, you're more innovative, and there is a boost to your, to your bottom line. So my first sort of tip, I guess, is don't get too hung up on the big data. Just start thinking about the data that you do have, especially thinking about when are people passing your digital or physical front door. Uh, so the next part, uh, I need to get a better slide for this, anyway, um, is what's happening inside. So we were just chatting, me and Chris, about what are some of the challenges facing the tourism industry right now. Now, one of them, quite, quite significantly, is staffing. Um, we know that with Brexit, we know that with the new immigration rules, that there's going to be an even bigger 
uh, constraining of the pool of potential talent that you'd want to hire for your business. Um, and we know that other costs are going up in terms of business rates and, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and whenever you're in a situation where you're potentially having increased costs, then you need to find potentially efficiencies. And I think where data is useful internally is looking at your back office processes or really targeting how you use staff and how you bring staff in to particular moments. So this is a, an example of some sort of quite high-end research going, play, going on at the University of Edinburgh, a uh, sort of pen factory in, um, in Italy. Maybe it's not relevant. I'm going to go for it. Uh, basically, what they did was they put sensors into uh, each of the different components of the manufacturing process. Uh, and what it started to do was actually show what the real process was. If you had the one on paper, but then when you could start to see where the product is moved around the factory floor, it showed there was huge inefficiencies. And then they could do something called process reengineering, and then it was actually been able to automate the development of a new process. And they were able to significantly reduce costs. And why is this important? Because whatever is happening in the tourism industry, a lot of this is back office stuff be it um, inventory management. You know, you're running out of this. We can expect demand at this time of year to be going up. Maybe you should think about how can you automate those repurchases. My dentist does it. It's not for me. My teeth are great. It's fine. Um, the other thing is, uh, is that how do you, you need to start collecting data about your internal processes. Um, I really like this example. Um, it's some great work that Strathclyde's been doing with fishers. And they didn't have data on their linens and their, and their towels and various things like that. So they decided, well, let's understand what's happening with our product. And they started putting chips inside of them, chips inside your bed sheets, that's fun. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, obviously it was not like that to anyone listening, it's, you know. But, um, but it really gave a good understanding of what their, big, what their business was, where all of the towels were going, into my bag, and, um, you know, all this sort of stuff. But also about the lifetime of that particular product, um, and, you know, when, you, when you're dealing with massive quantities, understanding that means that it's really, really powerful in terms of whether purchasing the, purchasing the raw materials. Is, is it going to stand how many washes? And you can start making significant marginal gains by looking at the data and then interpreting it and then making decisions from it. So understanding what's happening inside your business. Um, but there is also big data available, right? So even if you're looking at your small data, there is big data that you can start to access. Um, this is a Twitter map of Edinburgh. So uh, there's two colors. One represents locals, one represents uh, uh, visitors. <laughs> Not guessing which color is which. Um, you know, I, I live up on the Granton coast, and I like to walk down to Cramond. And, you know, it's, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I think it just sort of, uh, we talk a lot at the moment in Edinburgh around this idea of over-tourism. Um, I think it's probably more around uh, overcrowding in particular places. And the big data that we do have starts to show that that's probably the case. That, you know, we are not spreading the tourism population, the visitor population, into all of the parts of the Edinburgh city, but also the Edinburgh region that we, we perhaps should be. Um, so that's, that's one big source of, of data is social media data. Twitter data can cost a little bit, but if you can start to, there are ways you can start to back it up, but it's really useful um, when thinking, especially from a destination perspective. Now some really fun stuff. Does anyone use Google Trends here? Do you want to play that? So I'm sure a lot of you do. Uh, it's like it's amazing, it's like a wormhole. Uh, this is, uh, 
this is one of my favorite ones, which is just vegan food near me. Um, you know, if you're a restaurant, understanding trends and getting in front of them can be really, really valuable. Uh, you can do that partially by looking at Instagram, but just looking at Google Trends. And, uh, you know, in 2000, you know, 2017, you start to see a significant increase in vegan food near me. And this only goes to the end of last year. And I'm sure it's even gone, it's gone up higher. Um, I don't know when the Netflix documentary comes in. I'm guessing it's around about here. I'm not yet a vegan biased because I don't dare watch that documentary. Um, the second one, uh, who's a millennial here? Uh, just, just. Anyway, we love avocado toast, right? It's just beautiful. Uh, what's this? This is the point where a, mil uh, a millionaire tells, uh, tells um, millennials that, you know, uh, you can't afford a house because you have too much avocado toast. He was a wonderful chap. I really like him. And, uh, you know, he didn't really do anything to damage the reputation of avocado toast. It just keeps on going up. The other interesting thing here is that there's sort of like a, you know, Christmas, no one's really eating avocado toast. But in January, everyone goes nuts for that. So, you know, put that on your menu. This is big data that's available for anyone. It takes a bit of tweaking, but it's, it's good fun. Um, this is, uh, I did have one which had the Scottish and the, um, and the sort of uh, other spelling of whiskey. I don't dare show it to a Scottish audience because it's not a good look, especially when you're just searching in Scotland. But, I, but um, actually, the last talk I, I went to, I showed this. I was able to use this graph to predict what present I got. I don't worry, I'm not expecting it. But, um, you know, gin is overtaking it, and there's these massive spikes at Christmas again. So, you know, you can start to pick up on these trends over time, and it's really, really valuable, and it's big data. It's free, and it's available. Um, this was just coffee near me. I thought I discovered on a Tuesday coffee was a particular... You know, it was a massive spike. It wasn't. What happened was Costa offered free coffee on that particular week. It was interesting. Um, and now, for a specific tourism thing, um, how many of you have been to St. Abbs on the East Coast? Beautiful place. What's happened recently? It was featured in uh, Avengers. It was, it was a place called New Asgard in Avengers. Um, so what happens? when it's been cited as a place for um, filming of Avengers, it had a huge search increase. When the film came out, uh, there was a massive search for New Asgard, but also a big increase in the searches for St. Abs. And it might not look like much, but there's quite a significant increase in the amount of searches for St. Abs. What does that mean? It probably means, well, more people are obviously searching for St. Abs. More people probably want to go to St. Abs. We've seen it with Outlander. You'll see it with Batman here, I'm sure. Um, how do we start using this to better manage a tourism economy? We've seen real positives around North Coast 500, but there were also negatives. And we're seeing, you know, that, that feedback comes back, comes back all the time, that loads of people get to enjoy it, but it's busy, people are trying to go fast, other people are trying to go slow. How do you get ahead of problems before they arrive? And, and data and freely available big data is, is a good way to start. Another tip. Uh, this is a man trying to eat his phone. Uh, well, you know, you've got to start. And actually, I'm going to have to give a little bit of uh, uh, kudos to, to Peter, Peter in the, the audience here. Because I, I uh, heard a talk from him earlier and I was, um, a few years ago. And I was thinking, actually, that's really important. Was, there's a lot of AI-powered tools that are out there now that, um, that we should be utilizing. And we can go to companies, uh, good ones, and sometimes they don't work too well, but um, to actually just utilize what, they, what they've got on offer. So a few things which are happening at the moment is image search. 
you know, um, if you take a photo, you can actually search for our images. How, much, how, how many of us are optimizing that in our, in our product offerings on websites or whatever? It, perhaps not as many of us should be. So for example, if you wanna find a funny dress or an outfit you like, just take a picture of them, stalk them, and then you can you know, search and find exactly that thing. But you know, this is happening right now, and um, we're not optimizing for it. Voice search, of course, is another, another big area, and there are companies out there that will help sort of optimize for voice search. You know, all of this stuff uh, is starting to happen. Uh, people are starting to utilize it, and um, if you're a, a tourism company and you're small, then maybe think about what is, what is the different way that you can potentially get people to look for your, your product or what you've got. Um, there's another myth about data, and I think in particular around tourism and, and festivals and other things, that it's, uh, it doesn't do any harm. You know, data's good. I mean, this slide used to work a bit better until like Cambridge Analytica and like the collapse of the democratic world. But um, you know, this is the happiest picture of um, a policeman in America I could find. And it's just a, there's some interesting sort of ethical case studies that I always want, want to bring out. One is that um, when police forces have used some of these data, big data analytics projects, um, what they often do is bake in things like discrimination because the data that you have was probably built on historically bad data. Yet, they get crap in, you get crap out in a data analytics sort of way. So if you have a historically a discriminatory sort of police force, that data is baked into an algorithm and the stuff you get out is also going to be, it's going to be legitimizing the, the sort of uh, discrimination that, go, that goes in. Um, another example is um, bail decisions. So if you're a, you're a, um, uh, a judge, uh, often in the US, again, it's a good example, then you know, you're making the decision whether someone is going to be uh, given bail or not. Then the data that you have is of people who have uh, been given bail, and committed a crime, or didn't commit a crime, or the people who weren't given bail. You never know the people who weren't given bail whether they were going to commit a crime or not. So that's a big data gap. And the reason I mention it is that you have to be really wary when trying to make decisions from data that is provided to you, because you need to understand what data is going in to understand the potential fallacies that come out. And that's relevant for tourism. It's relevant for, for, for every sector. Um, one other thing around tourism in particular is some of the data we really would benefit from is understanding the flows of people, in particular around cities. And some of the best ways of capturing flows of people is by getting everyone's face in a big database. And obviously, that's not particularly welcome to many people, rightly so. Um, and there's even really interesting things you can do now at the edge of computing, which means your face is immediately deleted, all this sort of stuff. But it's still not socially or ethically acceptable at the moment. So we need to always think about you know, how do we ethically capture data? How do we do it GDPR compliant, of course, but also what is the right way of doing it um, as well? And uh, there's other things, which is, uh, I talked a bit about North Coast 500. In the south of uh, England, um, one uh, Facebook post from a South Korean influencer led to a, a massive deluge of people going to a, a destination that was completely unprepared. This this basically is uh, you know, the south coast, these cliffs, and people go in taking pictures, pretending to fall off, and inevitably, many people fell off. Um, so we, but you know, if you're using data in areas and destinations and all you're developed, we need to be thinking about, you know, don't just optimize for marketing, optimize for what is a, you know, a real destination. So there's a few examples. 
I have a doing for time, by the way. I'm going. Um, so what are the trends? What are the challenges? What are the things that are happening in data and tourism at the moment? There's a really good report I recommend reading um, from London First um, that has uh, started to access the big data that's relevant for destinations and, and tourism. Um, one of the challenges we have in tourism is uh, our visitor number data is, is quite poor. Um, the, the information Visitor Scotland get um, from surveys, it's been the best, it's been the gold standard for so long, but it's 18 months old when we get it. And I've been working with Visitor Scotland to try and see how we can potentially improve that. It takes a lot of time. But one of the key ways is how do we work with big companies with big data sets? London did it. Uh, they did it with MasterCard. They did it with Airbnb. And what they started to do was understand the real spending across London. Because a lot of the boroughs outside of London were not really considering themselves a destination. But they were. Now, of course, you have some big hotspots right in the center. But they were starting to look at MasterCard data and come up with a better sense of actually what was the real value of tourism in London. Uh, and we'd love to do this. We'd love to do this in Edinburgh. We'd love to do more of this in Scotland and start to get to better statistics beyond surveys um, around who's here and when. Um, one of the projects we're trying to do is forecasting. So we have a project that we're recruiting for now, if you know any postdoctoral researchers with machine learning experience, um, to, I'm sure we all do, uh, to start predicting six months in advance how many visitors are coming to Scotland, where they're potentially going, and what are the details about those, those uh, visitors. Because if we can start to get a little bit ahead of it and provide that information to businesses so that they can start to make some of those fine-tuned decisions, which I was talking about earlier, right? Who's at your front door? How do you prepare for who's coming? Now, there's always going to be a risk here. Like forecasting probably wouldn't have picked up coronavirus, right? It wouldn't have picked up um, some of these other trends. Um, but we, we need to be getting better than the 18-month lag we currently have. Um, Amsterdam is uh, a really good example of using data in a, in a, in a destination as well uh, and for specific businesses within that destination. It does help that their tourist tax creates 185 million pounds, apparently, which is amazing, um, and they reinvest it in data acquisition uh, and other things. But um, what they did was access telecommunication data. They used camera counters. And what we were starting to do was build up a really detailed image, a map around how people, visitors in particular, moved around the city and how they moved from um, different attractions within the city. Um, and then they were able to use that information for better digital signage, but they also were able to better advise um, people who are working in hotels, uh, Airbnb hosts, to say, speak to your guests today, don't go there at 9 o'clock in the morning, go there. Data enabled, but a very sort of analog or human intervention based on that data. Um, what are we trying to do uh, in Edinburgh? Well. We've got a project at the moment looking at how do you travel during the festival. Uh, I don't know if any of you went to uh, Edinburgh during the festivals uh, in August last year. I hope none of you were there the last Saturday of the festival. It was, uh, it was a bit of a mess, especially coming back to Glasgow. Now, why was it a mess? Um, LNER wasn't running trains to London. There was a uh, Murrayfield rugby match. There was a Hibs game. There was a Hearts game. There was for Fringe. Uh, it was the last day of a fringe, all this stuff coming together. Um, and, uh, and then there were some, uh, some problems on, on ScotRail. And all those things, and it was a really warm day, so people were having drinks, stayed out late, or everyone, 
Literally everyone tried to get the last train home to Glasgow, uh, and it didn't work. Um, could this have been anticipated? Doesn't require big data, to be honest, but anyway, it could have been anticipated. But it's not just that. There's loads of moments now that the festivals provide a real challenge for people to get across the city. Um, and what we're trying to do is capture and share data from multiple partners to identify the moments where mobility wasn't good enough and trying from the data to understand what were the potential causes. In particular, matching events data from things like a fringe festival with Lobian buses data to understand what is the correlation between business uh, buses and uh, and business of events in particular locations. So this has taken a long time. It's really complex, but it's, it's really worth starting. And I think transport um, is definitely an area where more than marginal gains can be made from use of data. Um, this is a, an example in Chicago. Just really quickly, uh, what they did was they just put sensors in, the, in the, um, the building and understood how long people dwelled outside of particular pictures. They then used those particular pictures in their marketing and saw a massive uplift. So people, interestingly, you know, wanted to see a particular painting. They went to see it, you market about it, and then actually increased the amount of people. Really basic. Um, and we're trying to do a similar thing. We've got a postdoctoral researcher starting soon who's going to look at museums, galleries, and attractions in Edinburgh, how people flow through them. Uh, interestingly, one of the biggest complaints uh, I've been told in the National Museum of Scotland was there's no Scottish history. There's, of course, lots of Scottish history. But the flow within that particular museum it can sometimes feel not like it leads to the Scottish history part. So how do they look at the flow of people moving in and then optimize it for that? Um, I'm going to skip across a couple because I'm, I'm a bit late. But um, one of them, uh, one little project we're trying to do, which is around data for advocacy. Um, so Greyfriars Kirk, uh, obviously an important Scottish historic site. Um, we don't know how many people go there because it's an unmanned, uh, non-ticketed attraction. Uh, uh, there's now loads and loads of tour groups going in there. Um, and I went in there about a week ago, and it's looking, it's looking terrible. It is muddy. It is, you know, this is a sacred site, really. And is people are trampling on it. This is, I don't believe it's over-tourism in Edinburgh, but this is an example of specific, specific unmanaged tourism. And so what are we doing? Well, we're not doing anything incredible. We're just going to put a sensor on each of the entrance and exits, potentially look at the flow within, um, just so we can advocate for more investment in this place. Because at the moment, it's run by the council, and council are undergoing cuts. How can we better manage these places? And how is data a part of it? Well, advocacy is part of that. Um, a couple of final things. Uh, these are some chairs developed by an AI algorithm. None of them look comfy. Uh, Eventually, this is what was created, and that, that does look beautiful. Uh, uh, not as nice as these lovely chairs, but this is, you know, this is an, so creativity and, uh, and data and AI is starting to happen. One of the big interesting projects within the University of Edinburgh is something called Create Informatics. Uh, and one of the flagship projects, and this comes from uh, the Fringe Festival themselves, is looking at new types of personalized recommendation. So uh, if you're Netflix, uh, you send people often, maybe not as much anymore, down the rabbit hole of you like this, you'll also like this, you'll like that, you'll like, and then you know, before you know it, you're just watching sort of like a chef's table like 50 times in a row. And, um, and same with sort of, well, Spotify's not actually like that, but Amazon is a bit like that. People like you like this. Now, I, there was a, the head of the BBC platform 
uh, who's actually from Grimsby, was speaking in, um, in Glasgow uh, a couple of years ago, and he was talking about how does BBC do this stuff? Because its remit is not to send you down a rabbit hole. Your, their remit is to educate, inform, you know, um, all that sort of stuff. And same with the Fringe Festival. The Fringe Festival is based on this sort of radical openness. So how do you recommend on the idea of radical openness? How do you recommend people to expand their horizons? Uh, so that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to think about the risk profile of individuals going to see fringe festivals. So if you went to this show, did other people go to that exact show? And if they did, what other shows do they see? And can you recommend based on that? Um, and it's quite radical, it's quite different. And uh, I'm Creative Informatics Program is working with a small company and the Fringe Festival to see how this is realized. And uh, Fringe have always been quite cutting edge in terms of new technology. So this is a, a really interesting project. Um, I'm just going to go to the end bit because I've gone on too long. But um, the way I, this is um, some work by Eddie Copeland, who was at Nesta and is now running the London office for data analytics. Or it's not exactly that, but he's, he's a really good person to look at. And I always come back to this, which is if you're doing data stuff, you need to have a specific problem in mind. You then need to think about what do you want in, within your power or the collective power of people within your circle to respond to that particular action. And then what do you need to see in front of you at that right moment to be able to enable you to make that action? And it's only then you've gone through that part that you should be thinking about what available data is, it can really fuel that data product. Um, and there's a lot of people who often maybe have a lot of investment and maybe don't think about the specific problem. This is, a, I think, a really interesting uh, example of that, where Elon Musk, you know, I'm not saying he's, I mean, he's a very clever man, he's doing amazing stuff, and he's potentially going to save the world. But um, he, uh, he was saying about boring companies going to do this loop system of public transport, thousands of small stations, and you know, everything's going to blend into the fabric of the city. He has basically developed and designed the bus stop and the bus system. You know, he didn't start with a problem. He started with interesting technology, and actually, this is not going to solve anything. It's just like, this is just buses. Um, fire. Uh, what do I mean? Uh, there was a really interesting, <laughs> was a really interesting project that went out of a data lab, which really started with a problem. Uh, and what they did was they were providing equipment, uh, and it was quite high-tech equipment. And um, what they realised, I think this was with Strathclyde as well, um, they realised that if that equipment was to go down, it would cost huge amounts of money and also reputational damage. Um, but they had data coming back from all, each of these bits of high-tech equipment. So they then studied the patterns of that data and understood and could predict when the machine would fail. Uh, so what they did is they were able to get ahead of the problem. They could start to recognize the trend, go in, fix it before it was a problem, and then they saved money, saved reputation. So they started a very specific problem. Interestingly, this changed the way the engineers had to work. They used to be the saviors going in, fixing, saving the day. Then they were sort of not seen as much. So data changes your whole business. It's, it's, it's really interesting. So if you want to know more about understanding data for tourism in a more specific, coherent way than I've just tried to do it, um, there's a good course that Edinburgh Napier have set up. It's called Understanding Data for Tourism. It's not often about big data, but it's often about just getting started with data. Um, and I highly recommend it. The next sort of iteration of it is starting in a couple of weeks. And uh, thank you ever so much for listening. Thank you so much. We're going to open up the floor to questions. Jessica's going to come around with her mic, um, just so it gets picked up for the video. So if anyone's got a question, if they want to raise their hand. 
Yep. Kathy's get one. Hi, uh, thank you very much, Josh. That was really interesting. Um, my name is Cathy. I'm from Watch Me See as a Scotland travel blog. Um, I'm quite interested in the example that you gave of the art gallery in Chicago that kind of analysed how long people dwell in front of particular pictures and then use that to market the museum and get attract more, more visitors. I'm quite interested in the ethics of that if I think of how that can be applied to Scotland. Because if, say for example, we had this project that analysed or, or counted how many people go to which sites, we would all know which sites would be the most popular ones. And then I guess the ethical question is, is do I promote these places even more? Or am I actually counting which places people don't stop and promote those? Yeah. So I'm quite interested in that kind of, I don't know if this is actually a question or something you would like to comment on maybe. Yeah. But like, yeah, I'm quite interested in that ethical point of view of how to use that data and how it is collected and how that can be used by different people in different ways. So from the ethical side, um, you would never capture any more information about that person apart from the fact that someone just stood there looking at a picture. Um, from the, I think it's almost like a business side. I was chatting to someone in Slovenia, um, not the, he came over to Edinburgh today, um, and what they're trying to do is look at the, the hotspots at particular times and the sort of the, the untapped amazing experiences that people are not using. And how do they use incentive mechanisms to try and push people around a little bit? And um, I think there's, there's sometimes risks about that, uh, especially if you know you've got a popular destination that requires almost a huge, you know, invested in it, a lot of people coming. Um, so you want to make sure that if you're using the incentive mechanisms, you're not over incentivizing away from popular and well built um, places. Um, and that you're incentivizing in a way that's responsible for the new destinations that you put in place. But for a place like Edinburgh um, at the moment, where there are some very serious hotspots and there's a lot more to offer, not just in Edinburgh, but across Scotland, I think it's actually makes it more ethical sense, per, or moral sense, I guess, to start promoting places that would provide a, a different, unique experience. The interesting thing about the Chicago one is they did loads of stuff with data, and they can because they're really rich and they charge tickets. Um, the, one of their more interesting projects was they looked at the exhibition churn. So uh, what they were starting to understand was when um, in winter months, locals came, but they didn't come back. Um, and in the summer months, loads of people would come. There's loads of visitors. And uh, you know, it's quite simple when you think about it. But just looking at the data, they were like, well, actually, if we start putting on more frequent, shorter, maybe locally driven exhibits, we can increase the amount of local people coming. Uh, and it had a massive impact on their bottom line. So it was just like, it's basic analytics, but it was just really valuable for how they developed their, their products and services. Did that answer the question? Kind of, yeah. A question at the back? <coughs> Hi Josh, my name's John Catterson from Aero Luggage. Um, the question I have is, if anyone here knows the Kelvin Hall gym, as you approach the car park to the gym, on the right hand side there's maybe every single space on the right hand side is a disabled space. Um, and I think there must be about 15 spaces in total. And it would seem that I don't know how they calculate that, but it would appear that it could be your type of soft, software or data analysis 
to see, well, actually there's so many members, so there'll be approximately X number of disabled members, which means at any one time there'll be X number of people in at this point. Because it would appear that there's, there's too many disabled parking spaces at that point with it being controversial. I just want to know how they calculate that. And I think if you could get a piece of software that could calculate that, or certainly your data sounds like that, I think that would be worth a lot of money well, to count, uh, the councils because it, it's every single space. must be about 20 of them. There's a company called Parkopedia, and I've, sort of, I've talked about Strathclyde a lot today. I'm mm. University of Edinburgh, but anyway, I'll talk about Strathclyde some more because they're great. Um, they, did a, they did a project, it was a Professor John Wilson, uh, who did a project with Parkopedia and the List data set. So the List have this big events data set. Parkopedia have a data set around where parking spaces become available, and they just started to use, well, can you use events data to predict open parking spaces? So it's not exactly that problem, but there is a big data set around parking spaces which um, they uh, seem to be quite open to at least academic research. So they also did it in Edinburgh to start understanding. One of the problems is that in Edinburgh in August, all the parking days become festival events. So that's, yeah, but it's, yeah, interesting question. They're always vacant spaces. Yes, yeah, yeah. There's one or two, which is, you know, it's just the fact that yeah. there's a couple of people, it's just that they're always maybe 90% Yeah, yeah. I thought maybe there was something to do with the data. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there's probably a broader question there, which goes beyond it, which is around how to use data for better infrastructure planning. Um, like one of the articles that came over the weekend about Edinburgh was about they potentially created uh, too many hotel rooms or there's too many hotel rooms in the pipeline. Um, I, I'm not sure that's true um, because there's obviously new Airbnb regulation coming in. Is Edinburgh still a very popular destination? Although admittedly with coronavirus, we might have far too many hotel rooms and rooms anyway. But um, uh, you know, one of the projects we're doing, which I haven't talked about, is we're trying to work with um, Midlothian uh, and uh, South of Scotland uh, with Visit Scotland to start to uh, have a look at that St. Abs problem, potentially, and to see is where the potential gaps based on current demand, future demand, and current offer around where we should be prioritizing tourism infrastructure spend. It's quite a complex one, it's quite difficult, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit linked. It's about what demand is really there, and are you providing for it now and in the future? So for one more, if anyone has a question? Okay, I've got one then. Yeah. You mentioned over tourism. Yeah. Is it real or is it just really bad planning? Um, both. <laughs> uh, it's not real in Edinburgh, yeah. I don't think. Um, I think there's bad, well, I don't want to say bad planning, but there probably is. Um, or it's, um, we're not getting ahead of the problems. I think there's, um, in Edinburgh is just an example, I think there's some really specific problems mm -hmm. that we need to deal with, not over tourism. I think over tourism can be an uh, uh, emotional thing. Uh, I think the community challenges that we need to address, Airbnb is a very specific one um, where, you know, it's being used as a commercial thing mm. and it's housing and it's, it, it is a problem. It's, yeah. um, I think the Grey Fires Kirk is a really interesting example, um, but it's more than that. It's also that, you know, we're not calculating the real environmental cost of some of these tourism problems, uh, or the tourism numbers, sorry. Um, but this, you know, I was just an example. That same Saturday, I was talking about where, um, where the whole trains collapsed and all these events were taking place. I walked from the centre of town, where it was really busy, to West End uh, in Edinburgh, and there was no one. And it was like nine o'clock, and it was, you know, we're not we're not spreading um, visitors across mm -hmm. the city and getting people to experience more. I think mm -hmm. there's, I think it, for Edinburgh, it leans more to ever. For Venice, it's just over, it, it's just over tourism. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
Oh, thank you for your time. Oh, have you got one? Oh, Jip. Well, it was more a comment. Um, so you know the uh, the Amsterdam example that you had up. Um, recently, they changed their um, kind of philosophy on tourism based on the data that they had of where people were going. So the I Heart Amsterdam that you had in that picture has now been removed yeah, yeah, because yeah. it was encouraging mass amounts of people that they couldn't deal with and I found that a really interesting way to approach it because what they were saying is yes this is iconic but that doesn't mean that that should dictate the way that tourists are coming to our city we should be giving them more and different things to come to so I when I saw that picture go off I was just like that's a really interesting example because they actually took direct action based on the how they saw people moving around um, and I just it was just that yeah I mean they're doing a big localism strategy mm. right? how do you get into into the into the neighborhoods I guess of Amsterdam I mean they, they've got they've got the thing about Amsterdam is they have this tourism tax and uh, they've got inelastic demand and they're able to generate huge revenues that's reinvested into the destination and is to support residents of Amsterdam so uh, it works really well when you've got that sort of, um, well, good planning and financial muscle, I guess. But they still have huge problems as well, mostly from British nag I guess. But <laughs> yeah. Thanks but so much for inviting me. No, no, I appreciate it. No, thank you for your time. Can everyone go have a massive thank you to Josh? <laughs>